Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. 2020 has been a crazy year, and I've found myself turning to the Buddhist classics to ground my practice. Shantideva, the 8th century Indian philosopher, widely revered by Tibetan Buddhists, wrote that an emotion like anger is so destructive that it can demolish a lifetime of good works in a single instant. Something to keep in mind as we prepare for the holidays. Tibetan Buddhist teacher Dzigar Kontrol Rinpoche has been teaching his students to work with difficult emotions for decades now. His latest book, The Peaceful Heart, The Buddhist Practice of Patience, takes the sixth chapter of Shantideva's The Way of the Bodhisattva as its root text and explains each passage with refreshing clarity. In this episode, I speak to Rinpoche about using humor to combat anger, looking inward to prepare to turn outward, and perhaps most importantly, about how to be patient with our own imperfections. As Rinpoche says, when we see our neuroses and painful emotions, we may lose hope in ourselves and our practice, but patience can offer us a way through. Welcome, Rinpoche, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, James, and thanks, uh, Tricycle, for this opportunity. Well, thank you. It's a wonderful book, and I got a lot out of it, and I'm looking forward to asking you questions about it. So the book is called Peaceful Heart, The Buddhist Practice of Patience. So why focus on patience? Why should we as practitioners focus on patience? Well, I thought of this as in a sort of a continuation from my other book, Training in the Tenderness. The Training in the Tenderness has a lot to do with uh, just uh, developing a warm heart and a sort of a unconditional sense of love or seva for all living beings. And that, in another term, is called uh, bodhicitta. And as to follow up with that, I thought the patient's practice or patient's book would be kind of in a good to do to preserve that kind of in a sense of uh, unconditional universal love for living beings. Both are for the effect of just really improving our state of mind and as well as state of heart and overall kind of a sense of well-being. So the patience, I really thought, not claiming at all, has to have a great uh, depth of patience or anything like that. But as much as I have been able to apply the teachings of the patients on myself, it really has helped me so much to sort of uh, really maintain a sense of uh, upliftedness and a sense of cheerfulness and peace underneath. Because, you know, we live in the world that, as you know, is very challenging and also a lot of uh, conflicting emotions and uh, conflicting thought process that's sort of uh, all-pervasive. So that's why I thought, as it's been helpful to myself, I thought it could be helpful for the larger readers. I'd just like to ask about the structure of the book. You found inspiration in the sixth chapter of Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva. Before we begin, can you explain to our listeners who Shantideva was and what the text is? Shantideva is a, a, I think, sixth-century Indian prince who renounced his princeship and became a monk. 
And uh, he lived in the Nalanda University as in a somewhat of a hidden scholar and a hidden yogi. But then people thought that he was just too lazy to be in the monastery and sort of uh, living off of the monastery's offerings. So they thought that he should be kicked out. Uh, but because he was a prince, they feared that you know there might be some consequences of just kicking him out. So they wanted to kind of uh, give him the opportunity to do uh, teachings in the large assembly hall. And then they thought by making him this uh, proposition that then he will sort of leave on his own accord with the being embarrassed that he wouldn't have anything to offer. So when they asked him to come and teach in the big assembly hall, he said, uh, first, of course, no, no, he didn't know anything. He didn't have anything to offer. But then later he agreed, and then people were curious what he's going to teach. And then this is when he came in and taught. And uh, uh, one of His Holiness Dalai Lama's teacher, Kunur Muche, said to His Holiness, His Holiness often quotes this, uh, there's not been uh, anything like that since it's been written on how to sort of practice love and compassion and how to sort of uh, train oneself on the mind training, so to speak, of that. Okay, so you describe patience as the primary antidote to anger. What is the primary cause of anger? Well, in the Shantideva's book, there are quite a number of ways that we get worked up. And it's a state of a disturbance that occurs in our mind. And then that can sort of like turn into a loss of one's temper or loss of one's patience. For example, you know, we have a sense of self and that sense of self has expectations such as uh, we want to be liked and we want to be known in a positive light and uh, we want to have a means to live well. Then when we see anything is an obstacle of that, whoever threatens those things, then we get somewhat worked up with our feelings of a bit of an, a sense of agitation with those who causes the disturbance or obstacles. And when that happens, though there is some fundamental level of awareness, but there's no really a greater depth of awareness to see how you're getting worked up and how you're losing your own deeper level of a peace and uh, sanity with your own kind of a thought process uh, that is getting rougher and rougher and the emotions that continues with them getting a more or crosser and crosser in the state of anger. So if one can actually sort of develop that sense of the self-awareness, deeper level of a self-awareness, then you could uh, somewhat moderate your own thought process and the emotions that accompanies with them to be kind of a pacified just as His Holiness Dalai Lama always says, which is from this chapter, if there's something you could do, you know why to get agitated. And if there's nothing you could do, what is the benefit of getting agitated? So you could bring your reasonable mind in there. And to do so, you need the kind of uh, understanding of how you get worked up or agitated in the first place. So... The way Shantideva looks at anger, it's something that comes within, but it's so convincing or seductive to think that there are external causes of our anger, that something else is at fault. How do you see that? 
I think, uh, you know, there is definitely other causes, and uh, there's definitely other causes that really uh, uh, provokes us. And as there is a saying, you know, if there's uh, no one to be patient with, how could you develop a patience? Uh, so there is that. But how you relate with that, that liberty and the power has to be in one's own kind of a hand. And oftentimes when we don't have the strength of patience, then it sort of uh, happens very fast, very quickly, and, you know, we have to immediately seemingly succumb to the outer circumstances. But when one does, uh, knowing that there is the circumstances out there, but you also have as well uh, some liberty and also control to kind of see the situation in a different way or, you know, uh, relate it to the situation and differently, then you could, you know, moderate your own uh, state of mind and emotions. You talk about some kind of control and yet anger is one of those feelings that so often prompts us to lose control. And, you know, you point out that it's best to start with a little stuff first if we're just beginning to practice patience. In other words, there's a disturbance of mind and we learn to cultivate patience. But when you say begin with the little things, can you give us a few examples? Well, for example, you know, somebody can say something to you that seemingly is uh, offensive to your ego, and it is. But uh, at the same time, if you are not as much proud as uh, you are, you could most probably uh, have a little bit more humor and uh, take it less offensive. And maybe a lot of people you know uh, live that way and they are much more better off than you are. So you could kind of in that way then uh, have a sense of intention to have a little bit more of an, uh, less of a pride and more of a humor and things like that. So in that way, when the situation comes, then you could kind of uh, even smile or laugh and diffuse the situation of getting angry. You know, you mentioned egos. We have our own on the one hand. On the other, you write about developing tolerance for other people's egos, how in order to practice well, we should just let them be. So how do you make space for someone else's ego? Yeah, well, I think when we talk about our own ego, we're talking about egos or reactions. Ego we have, and we have to have to some extent. But the reactions of our ego, if we are not in control of that, it can sort of really uh, unexpectedly throw us off. In a one hand, clear thinker and uh, very disciplined and also very hardworking. But when we have no sense of self-analysis or perspective on how our ego's reaction goes sometimes way too uh, in flare in many of the circumstances, we can be always a little bit of more scared of our own self than others, you know. So once we know that and once we can work with that and we can get more things in control, we could be less afraid of ourselves as well as less afraid of others and have a little bit more of a sort of a freedom or sense of a more humor or uplifted social engagements. 
You know, a related question. What about other people's anger? It can be so disruptive or intimidating. Uh, Sometimes somebody explodes and everybody else just shuts down. How do we make room for that or how do we respond to that skillfully? As a historian, the Lama always says that. And uh, I also do really believe patience is not a pacifism. Patience is a more constructed and a conscious choice of being. As with the anger, it is a unconstructed and uh, habitual, and it's a more unconscious way of uh, responding. So when somebody gets angry at you, and unless you really believe, you could make the difference by getting angry back, you know, you have to actually come up with a means to remedy the situation or means to actually counteract whatever is happening in the situation. So unless you really believe, some people do believe that eye for an eye, so to speak, uh, counteract others' anger with your anger. Most of the case, you know, whatever you need to do, you need to do it with a calm mind. You know, communication, for example, you need to have misunderstanding being kind of solved that you need to do through the communications. Or just, you know, simply, you know, uh, trying to kind of, uh, when somebody gets angry in your face and uh, you don't want to lose your love and you want to sort of have the love or the relation of the uh, love uh, nature trump over the uh, challenge that you face, all of those requires a state of uh, calmness, you know, and state of uh, patience to be able to achieve So various situations require skillful means and wisdom, but one very important component for those skillful means of wisdom is going to be calmness, a clear state and the calmness uh, which the patient's uh, practice is uh, all about. You say that patients can feel like we're trying to tolerate something that is intolerable, yet it is tolerable. But in the beginning, it doesn't necessarily feel that way. What can you suggest to people for whom this is a new practice and they feel that remaining calm is difficult because uh, we're trying to tolerate something that feels intolerable? See, the word uh, tolerate in the English is a little bit of, in a sense of trying to contain something that is uncontainable, you know. Mm -hmm. For example, there's an, a sense of you're holding a wild animal in your hand and then you're trying to kind of uh, make your hand tighter and tighter, fingers tighter and tighter to sort of uh, contain the uh, wild animal in your hand. That's one way to look at it, you know. What's another way? Another way to look at it is, you know, like a porter. Porter has a, a mud and a, a pottery and his own hands all in a working to sort of uh, have an uh, outcome of the dependent origination for one's own vision, you know. Both is a controlling, but one is controlling more in a sense of uh, already perceiving uncontrollable and then trying to control and contain that. One is controlling to sort of like have the right outcome with the sort of uh, right applications. So... In the Buddhist teachings, it's always the patience is more to do with the second kind. 
trying to work with the circumstances, trying to work with the state of mind, try to work with the others to sort of have a better outcome rather than seeing that it's a something to kind of just clamp down and control to contain and already kind of viewing it as in a sort of a suppression or already as in a viewing it uh, as an uncontrollable. You know, we often talk about being patient with other people, but I think the hardest part sometimes is being patient with ourselves. And I'd like to read something from your book. You say, it's common for people to give up on themselves easily. And I think you refer to Western students particularly. Many Dharma students tend to judge themselves too harshly and then become discouraged. Part of the problem is that they want to be too good. When they see their neuroses and their imperfections, they have a hard time accepting themselves. They say, I've been practicing for the last 20 years. How could this happen? How could I do this? How could I have this thought, this feeling? What can you say about that? Well, I think this is something that I think happens all across the globe and all across all cultures. But sometimes working with my own students, I come across this quite often. They want to be exempt from certain kind of thoughts, certain kind of feelings, not because, you know, want to be pure kind of in a person or anything like that. Sometimes just the thoughts or the emotions has a sense of uh, being too kind of uh, complex and uh, working with them is also too complex. And uh, also such thoughts, such emotions, maybe perhaps is a seen as in a sort of a sign of uh, not being a, a good student or a good disciple or a good person, you know. Combination of those things sort of uh, makes them a lot of the times just push it away from one's mind. And then when you try to push away something from mind, it persists to come back much stronger. So, you know, my teacher used to, which he used to always say, just as a thought, just as an emotion, you know, it's not uh, really anything problematic or threatening, you know, how you work with them and how you actually even, in a, any case of a thought and it's contained, how you give a power to it by reifying it or solidifying it is the problem. So when one can sort of take away the judgments to have a thoughts being bad or negative, then therefore oneself being bad or negative or because of the thought requires certain kind of a complex thought itself or the feeling itself is complex and it requires certain, you know, looking into and being up for that mm -hmm. and uh, not being somewhat lazy in that. When you can, you know, sort of uh, welcome to look into it, what is the complex feeling that you are having? I mean, you cannot look and right away become clear, but in time you would become clear. And if you need to, you could talk to somebody or, you know, get some kind of help too. So in this way, to rise any thoughts or any feelings is a really a not a problem. But we make it to be a problem and that sometimes causes the stronger reactions to come out and much more sort of like a burst of a, a negative energy to come out, I feel. You know, listening to you talk, I wonder, what role does curiosity play? Because sometimes, rather than judge, we can be curious. What is this? I really think that much of the Buddhist really objectivity is based on curiosity 
to learn and to know through investigation, not with a pre-sense of already decided that this is good or this is bad or this we should not do or this we should do. You know, based on the wisdom, what wisdom detects. And the wisdom is to be your wisdom, not some kind of wisdom in the books or a hearsay by somebody else that you have to comply to. For that, you really need the curiosity and the openness. And the openness and the curiosity makes up the objectivity much more poignant and personal. Thank you. You know, often we're focused on externals and we're not necessarily paying attention to addressing what's in us. But let's say something in the world you feel is not right and you act to correct that. Often that comes with some anger. How do you suggest addressing anger in that moment when we're taking an action, or is it just too late? In the Buddhist teachings, the most of the times we, of course, encourage to act properly and meet the situation in the best way possible, being the practitioner that you want to be. But that's sometimes it's very too difficult, you know. But I think... Uh, much of the learning comes from the inside, uh, from the inside analysis of what took place. When you analyze yourself and your reactions or your interaction, how you responded, reacted, and what was the kind of a weakness that sort of surged inside of you, even though you were intending to be a strong and uh, patient, uh, you could actually have so much of information about yourself from the inside. So then as you have more clarity and information in the inside, then you could actually prepare yourself to be in the same situation and encounter the same thing with a much more new kind of knowledge of yourself and how to interact and how to respond you know, and still there's the habit, power of the habit. And the power of the habit is not going to be at once overcome. But if you work on the power of the habit again and again without being despondent and giving up, you know, power of the habit is built up. As it is being built up, it could be broken down. And in that way, you are persistent in working with your own kind of a self really will ultimately win because this is a more conscious. Conscious and unconscious, in the end, conscious wins. And wisdom and uh, confusions, in the end, wisdom wins. Light and darkness, in the end, light wins. So one has to have that kind of like a sense of, uh, you know, not thinking about it, but then reacting again the same way. In the next time, you have to revisit and analyze and have a deeper sense of clarity from the inside analysis. And for that, I think the meditation practice, you know, in a general sense, you know, we try to kind of go back and think, you know, what happened and what did I do wrong or feeling quite disturbed and guilty. That's normal. But when you do it in a meditative state of a shamatha, it's a very different. Mm -hmm. So, you have to do this, not just like a usually how we try to kind of revisit the situation in a sort of old-fashioned or habitual way, but in this meditative state of the shamatha and the vipassana, of the relative things that is taking place in your mind or took place in your mind, then you will have a much more clarity. 
Is this where analytical meditation comes in? I think analytical meditation is this, mm -hmm. but for the basis of the analytical meditation, you know, when you are really worked up, it's hard to kind of do a shamatha, but, you know, in a little time when your mind comes down and then you continuously try to sort of calm your mind from the kind of, not the particular disturbance, but a state of uh, mind being somewhat busy and uh, sort of uh, right. preoccupied to go into a shamatha and then analyze. You have so much wisdom in yourself that uh, can sort of uh, reveal itself what you need to do. Yeah, I think what's characteristic of anger, for me anyway, is that it's very claustrophobic. There's no space, there's nothing else but the anger. And I think with meditation, the space opens up so that it can be seen. Yeah. Also, one thing that my teachers always have emphasized is that if something happened that is, you know, negative and uh, you reacted quite badly uh, with the anger, you have to get to the bottom of it, what was happening inside of you, you know, instead of judging it and then trying to sort of like, you know, not do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So for that, the meditation practice is very helpful. You're listening to Tricycle Talks, a podcast from Tricycle The Buddhist Review. As 2020 draws to a close, we at Tricycle are taking a moment of reflection and gratitude for the teachings, practices, and community that have nourished us through these turbulent times. As we face ongoing uncertainty, Tricycle is committed to providing a space of refuge and contemplation for all who seek out Buddhist teachings. In the year ahead, we'll continue to offer a wide range of free and low-cost resources to help you navigate the path forward with an open mind and open heart. If you've benefited from Tricycle's free podcast this year, please consider supporting our work with a year-end donation. We're a nonprofit organization, and it's generosity of our donors that allow us to keep our operations running and launch new initiatives. Your support makes all the difference. Please donate at tricycle.org donate. As a special gift, if you donate $25 or more, you'll receive a copy of our new ebook, Five Practices to Change Your Mind, which offers instruction in foundational Buddhist practices. Donate today at tricycle.org donate. Now, let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Sigur Kontro Rinpoche. Rinpoche, I'd like to pick up with anger again. You know, we all feel anger, and for most of us, it's inevitable. Is anger or is rage ever a good or skillful thing? Well, I think if you are doing it consciously, I think it would be possible, you know. But if you are doing it unconsciously, I think it could be a very much like a, what, uh, you know, from the standpoint of view of the world wisdom or the conventional wisdom, maybe perhaps there's some... Uh, benefits of that. But uh, from the standpoint of view of a practitioner, I would uh, think it would be difficult to say what's the positive. If any positive comes out, it would be more like a war, you know, one winning over the other. It's like one power winning over the other. 
but not based on some kind of a sanity and some kind of a real great uh, ground of a wisdom or a fairness. You know, there's some, I'm not sure if it's anger or not, but something that can feel very like anger. Sometimes I notice that a clarity comes. There's a certain clarity that comes with it. Like I can see something. I'm not sure if that's anger. And frankly, anger has never been especially useful to me. But there are those moments when with some kind of sudden response or anger, I can see something clearly, just momentarily perhaps. Yeah, I think anger can also come as a strength, but that's a kind of a false illusion, Mm -hmm. you know. Anger can come as a resolution, but that's a false illusion. Anger can come as a power, that's a false illusion, you know. We give the credit to the anger, but if there is anything like that, it would be coming from how you're addressing the situation with the wisdom and skillful means, and you're giving the credit to the anger. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I hadn't thought of that. I'll have to notice next time, right? Have yeah. some curiosity about what that is. Yes, exactly. You talk about pain in our lives as an opportunity to practice virtues like patience. So. I don't want to elevate pain to a virtue, but what is the advantage of thinking of pain in this way? Well, first of all, I wanted to kind of uh, uh, make it common. Working uh, with one's anger with the patient's practice, you get angry when you are seeing somebody as in a sort of opposed to you or threat to you or uh, doing something harm to you, right? So in that moment, it's very difficult to feel that warmth towards the person, and uh, you're not feeling close to the person. So, of course, you're working with the anger itself, and you're working with the diffusing the kind of a situation to not be explosive. But we have to go beyond that. Once that's being done, there has to be some kind of a fundamental warmth that you need to have and that you need to kind of have it as your valuable asset of your own heart to be in that place and uh, also to have that with the others, to value the relation with the others and uh, to value the relation even with the people who kind of disturbs you, if not for any other reason, but the sake of patience, you know, for the sake of your chances here to practice patience. So ultimately, I think that works as the kind of a ground to build your patience. If you're only working with the tolerance and patience practice without the kind of a fundamental ground of developing a warmth and a sense of a closeness and a sense of affection towards all, and then whoever is, in this case, is included in that, however it's challenging, that I think really does the wondrous to me. You know, the book that you're drawing from by Shantideva in English is called The Way of the Bodhisattva. So can you talk a little bit about the practice of a bodhisattva and how that relates to all of this? I think the practice of the bodhisattva is much like, you know, in the Christian teachings, you know, we are all made of God's love, right? And uh, we are all children of God's. Like that, I think from the Buddhist teachings point of view, we are all made of a nature that really has a two level. One level that's more in the absolute, another level that's more in the relative. And in the relative, we all wishes to be happy, we all long to be free from suffering. So that is the kind of North Star 
We should try to really kind of work with our lives and work with anyone who's in our lives and the world and the society, what you want to be done to you, you know, you want to try to kind of do that to others, you know, as the kind of a practice of the bodhisattva. Then in the absolute, you know, try to sort of even go beyond that to see everyone's nature is enlightened because everyone's nature is basically like a sky, unconditional and awake. When I read this book, your book, and also when I read Shantideva, sometimes the bar can feel so high. In other words, according to Shantideva, if somebody assaults me, I should feel compassion for them because they're incurring negative karma. And so to what extent is this aspirational and to what extent are we to understand this is actually possible? Well, I think Shantideva also speaks in his book, uh, like, you know, generosity practices are really very important for the bodhisattvas and uh, way of the bodhisattvas and to the point that you could actually give some very valuable things like your own kind of parts of body or your own life. But you don't try to get there right away. You know, you try to get there by doing a generosity practice of just giving a meal, half of your meal, you know, to someone else. And then building the habit and seeing the value and knowing how that sort of like not only helps others, but it helps yourself to kind of like be much more free of uh, uh, neurosis and free of uh, a lot of uh, pain and sufferings of the neurosis, you know. So it's all a working progress. There's no really a bar that you kind of like a set and then you try to kind of immediately get there. Right. You know, you talk about a kind of reverse psychology and developing better habits of mind. For instance, looking at obstacles as opportunities for practice. It was helpful for me to think of it in terms as a reverse psychology in that way. So what about actively putting yourself or consciously putting yourself in situations where you know you'll be challenged in order to take that as an opportunity to practice, putting your feet to the fire, say? For example, I think just, again, tie up this with your other questions, like a pain. You know, we all, as an instinct, we reject the pain. And we reject the cause of the pain. Whether we are able to identify what the cause is, uh, we are able to also, you know, identify what really is uh, we are feeling. You know, whenever we feel like a pain, we reject the pain and we reject whatever we think it's the cause, we reject. However... If one is able to not do that and you really feel like, you know, you need to kind of uh, get beyond that kind of uh, initial response to the pain that habitually we are all used to doing so, then if you look at the pain from a different angle, you could find appreciations for pain. Like a pain can make you more compassionate, more sensitive to others' pain. Pain can make you kind of lose certain attachments that normally preoccupies us all the time. Pain can also make you a little bit more, you know, searching for deeper level of a meaning in your life. And also pain can make you oftentimes, you know, quite grounded and not riding in this high horse that a lot of times people feel like that's what they should do and they do it. And more self-reflective too. So if you value those things, and then if you're looking from those angles, pain can actually sort of 
generate those sort of uh, positive attributes in your mind and you could give the credit to the pain. So therefore, then you're not relating to the pain as a sort of useless thing. Okay. I'm going to ask this question because I know you're an artist. We've published your work in the magazine, your painting, and I'm going to read from the book right now. You write, artists have to justify their existence unless they are able to make a living from their art. Society in general does not respect aspiring or unknown artists. It is a similar situation for Buddhist practitioners. It is hard for others to see the benefit of your practice and to appreciate how you are spending your time. However, if you justify your existence based on the approval of others, you will feel insecure and frustrated as a practitioner. Can you say something about that? Well, I think, you know, we are social animals. A lot of the times we value things, what the society values, what mass values. And uh, mass and the society values a successful artists, successful, you know, uh, renowned kind of uh, practitioners and who has got some positive feedbacks. Now, positive feedbacks is, of course, we all want, you know, but there's two kinds of positive feedbacks. There's a positive feedbacks that your ego latches on, and there's a genuine positive feedbacks. The genuine positive feedback has to come from your own kind of understanding of uh, what you're doing and what your whole discipline is, and what your you know discipline is is based on your own kind of a meaning and values of the wisdom or skillful means. And then, according to that, if you are getting some positive feedbacks, you know, from the outside world, I think there's a good handshake, you know. However, that sort of excites you for the moment. Your ego, you're not going to go after egos craving for that kind of a positive feedbacks over and over and sort of get lost in that, you know? Like a like on Facebook or something. Like on the Facebook or any anyway. You know, and when you don't get then you feel very insecure, you know. Mm. You would have some good foundation. Uh, the other kind is it just maybe you have something like that in the beginning, but then you uh, getting the positive feedbacks and then you know the feeling that the ego sort of produces to be recognized or to be acknowledged or to be... And then that in itself becomes such a high, so you kind of forget about your discipline, you forget about your own general sense of uh, integrity of being an artist or practitioner or what value you have or what meaning you have in there for yourself. And then you just kind of you know, get hooked into that. And that sometimes, a lot of the times, destroys the artist and the practitioner, you know. And in that way, sometimes that becomes the most obstacle than the doing the practice itself. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'll go to a verse that perhaps you can comment on. But the question I have is about an interview that we ran years ago between you and Pema Chodron in which you said that you can use tsewa, or tenderness of heart or love, to help combat feelings of depression. Since so many people struggle with depression, can you say something about that? Well, I think, you know, depression has a physical element to it, and then also depression has a mental element to it. Like, for example, if you are working really hard, and you're working very hard without getting the proper rest, and proper sleep, 
physically you could get, you know, uh, we call it wind disturbance, and then that can have a mental effect that is similar to our depression. Now, mental depression is like you could lose something very precious, you know, loved ones, and then that can kind of uh, spin you into a depression. However, the feeling of the depression is that what you're feeling is very unique and what you're feeling is very, very kind of a grave and then nobody understands how you're feeling. Nobody could feel like this. But that's not the case. There are many who have gone through depression and there are many who are depressed. And everyone kind of to some extent feels the same. So talking to somebody who has been there, who is in there, is very helpful. Talking to somebody who's not there, who has not been there, is really not very helpful. Right. So slowly, slowly in this way, you know, if it's a physically caused depression, you know, you could kind of get rest and you could get sleep, and, but not with a sort of like a Western medicines. Western medicine sometimes makes it much more worse with the more sort of natural remedies. And then with the mental, like losing a loved ones or losing something very special thing in your life, you know, if it's kind of like a all of a sudden made you depressed, you know, taking the time to kind of mourn and go through the process of healing and then also being, you know, not overly worried, but doing best as you could to kind of heal in the given time. All of those can help. And then talking to somebody who's been there, I think it's very helpful. Okay, I said that was the last question, but actually bring something else up despite our producers telling me that we're running out of time. You talk about, let's say you have everything your heart desires, but you don't have peace of mind. You can't enjoy it and you can't enjoy your life. What does it mean for us to enjoy our lives? Well, I think enjoying our life is really, first of all, you know, where your mind is and where your heart is. If your heart is in love, universal love or any kind of a form of love, there is a much more greater potential for you to enjoy your life. And if your mind is in a positive thinking, similarly, you are in a much more, you know, greater probability to enjoy your life. If this too is not in a good place, no matter whatever you have, it's an idea of enjoying your life, but not really enjoying your life. Okay, so I'm going to read some verses from the way the Bodhisattva, from the sixth chapter that you draw inspiration from in this book, and I'd like to hear your commentary. And do I not already bear with the common irritations, bites and stings of snakes and flies, experiences of hunger and thirst, and painful rashes on my skin, heat and cold, the wind and rain, sickness, prison, beatings, I'll not fret about such things. To do so only aggravates my trouble. I think this verse is a very helpful one because we all value ourselves or anyone in our life to be strong. But the strong is not an intrinsic thing that, you know, without a condition it comes on its own. Strength is built, built in a small ways first. Like if you are in this way, a tolerant, for example, with the elements first, and then the insects, or, you know, different kind of things that happens, which you could, you know, get very upset, but you choose not to. 
and learn to kind of like tolerate them and then build your strength. And slowly in that way, whatever in a major way that comes in your life, you would have that kind of strength in the end built to tolerate or to work with the situation to seek a different outcome of your response and your inner peace to be preserved. And I think this is the verse that sort of leads to that. Okay, and the last two verses I'll read, I'm going to read because you talk about putting oomph into your practice, and I understood that as courage or fortitude. So I'll read this, and you can tell me what you think. There are some whose bravery increases at the sight of their own blood, while some lose all their strength and faint when it's another's blood they see. This results from how the mind is set, in steadfastness or cowardice. And so I'll scorn all injury and hardships I will disregard. For example, like uh, in the general world, uh, particularly I think in this sort of like a world of, uh, you know, warriorship, braveheart is very, very important, you know, braveheart and being able to sort of like, you know, be brave in the battlefield and things like that. However, the society sort of like a conditions that the children growing in that society and the culture inspires and tries to mimic others and behave others. And to the point, you know, they actually go to wars and uh, without any fear and without hesitations. It's a build-up consensus. It's a build-up culture. It's a build-up values. It's not something that comes on its own, you know. Then others don't have that. And, of course, you know, let alone going into a battlefield or anything like that to exhibit a bravery, just seeing one's own small cut, one can actually faint because one doesn't have that kind of build-up, you know. So it's pointing how we react is not some independent thing. It's a build-up of a many components. It's a dependently originated. It's a habit, you know, and it's how we sort of uh, view and value and what kind of a perspective we have that we sort of have been holding for generations. Well, thank you, Rinpoche. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners? Well, I'd like to thank Tricycle for this opportunity. And uh, I also, you know, like to whoever listens to this and whoever actually engages with the book of the practice of the patients to be really able to find their objective goal to preserve their love or peace or state of sanity more and more so. And hopefully this book is in us some help for that. And I pray for that. Well, thank you, Rinpoche. I just would like to say to our listeners that it especially at a time like this, I find this book remarkably helpful. Developing patience is so clearly described. Your teachings are invaluable. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Zigger Comptroll, author of Peaceful Heart, The Buddhist Practice of Patience, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Please write us at feedback.tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>